Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Atasya Milani. I direct the Iranian Studies program here, and it's my uh, privilege and uh, pleasure to welcome you all tonight, and particularly welcome our very esteemed speaker, about whom I'll say a few words in a minute. Uh, I want to make a couple of uh, brief announcements. Uh, one, <coughs> this uh, uh, week is a rather busy week for us. We have three events. Uh, Today, tonight, tomorrow, uh, we have a, a much uh, uh, anticipated uh, event at uh, the Bing Center, uh, where we have this musical prodigy from Iran, who gave her first concert at 12 in Iran's most important concert hall, Rudaki, uh, who is now 17 and being trained in the Vienna Conservatory, one of the Vienna's better conservatories. Uh, she will be receiving the Beta Prize for young artists, and she will be performing four remarkable pieces that she has chosen. She plays the piano, she plays classical Western music, and she is really a remarkable uh, player. So uh, it is for free at Bing Center, tomorrow at 7. And if you have never been to Bing Center, this is truly a double your pleasure, double your fun, uh, as they used to say in the ad, because uh, the acoustics is remarkable in that building, and she is a very remarkable artist. And then the last uh, event for the quarter uh, comes uh, very close after that on Thursday. Uh, Hushang Shahabi, very, very creative, eminent, erudite scholar, is going to talk about culture wars and dual society in Iran. Hushang uh, uh, Shahabi has given talks for us a couple of times, and it doesn't matter what he talks about, whether it is rice cooking or tahdi or culture wars or Iranian Shiites in Lebanon. He has something very new to say. I strongly urge you to attend both of these events. Uh, for me, it is a particular uh, pleasure and privilege to introduce our uh, tonight's speaker, uh, Professor Mogadam, Fatalie Mogadam. Uh, he is clearly, in, in my at least understanding, the most accomplished psychologist that the Iranian diaspora has ever produced. He is certainly one of the most prolific scholars that we have been fortunate to have. Uh, he is a professor of psychology at Georgetown University. Uh, he began his uh, career with experimental psychology and then decided to study something a little less experimental and more practical, and that is why people become Democrats and why do they become dictators. Uh, the book is truly uh, it's called The Psychology of Dictatorship. It is published by the American Psychological Association. Uh, I strongly urge you to try to read it if you really have any interest in understanding uh, why it is that we live in such a perilous time in terms of the problems and prospects of democracy and problems and prospects of dictatorship. Uh, it is, uh, I think, today, literally and metaphorically today, uh, it, it can't be a more uh, 
interesting time to be talking about this issue and to be talking about it from the perspective, the rather unique perspective that Professor Moradam brings to it. Uh, he brings all the rigors of uh, experimental psychology, but he is as comfortable in the world of literature. You're as likely to see a reference to Middlemarch and Shakespeare as you are to some of the more interesting experimental psychology uh, trials in trying to figure out why it is that people uh, succumb to uh, dictatorships, why do they become dictators, and why do they succumb to a dictatorship. And at the core of uh, his uh, argument is truly, I think, the problem that is facing much of the Muslim world. I think the problem of democracy the difficulties of transitioning from a uh, despotic society to a democracy. He has some remarkable statistics about how many failed transitions to democracy we've had. And he has some very interesting ideas about uh, how both perilous the democratic experience is and how uh, uh, rejuvenating of human uh, emotions it can be. In other words, I think the central problem in Iran, and I think maybe the central problem in the West for the last four or five hundred years, has been the rise of modernity and the rise of the individual with responsibilities and the question of whether individuals can in fact sustain that individual uh, liberty. Uh, I was uh, uh, talking with Professor Mogadam uh, many years ago I translated the uh, Grand Inquisitor, uh, Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor, which is a discussion of whether in fact Christ was right in surmising that people want freedom or the Grand Inquisitor was right, that people want certitude but want certitude that takes a, they're willing to give up their certitude. That is really the core of this uh, book. It is full of fascinating discussions about uh, both the psychology, the social psychology, and the disharmony between structural change and psychological change, and why that disharmony accounts for the many perils that we face today in societies that are trying to jettison their despotic past and embrace a democratic future. So it has been for me a pleasure to read the book. I strongly urge all of you who have any interest in this, and it is uh, my privilege to welcome Professor Mokata. It is an honor to be here, and uh, I want to congratulate uh, Dr. Lani on the uh, outstanding leadership he has shown. This is such a fantastic center that's been established at Stanford. Uh, I think I've visited the major Iranian study centers around the country, and I'd say this is by far the best there is. Uh, you're really setting the pace. Um, I'm going to talk today about this book that was mentioned, The Psychology of Dictatorship, but uh, like any other book that I've written, it, it shouldn't really be published because it's always unfinished. You know, when you read something you've written and you think, oh, I could have done that differently. And right now I'm involved in writing The Psychology of Democracy, so any feedback you have would be wonderful. Mm -hmm. 
I'm an experimentalist, and I went back to Iran with the revolution, and there I discovered that you know, the kinds of experiments I was trained in really don't fit in well in a revolution. So I started thinking more broadly about what it is that psychology can offer in these broad issues of transitioning from dictatorship to democracy. I want to start off by talking about the labels we use. In everyday life, we talk about dictatorships and we talk about democracies as if they are categorical, as if there are dictatorships over there and democracies over here. I want to encourage you to think about a continuum, a continuum whereby all societies began as dictatorships. Some societies have made some progress towards what I call actualized democracy. But as far as I know, we don't as yet have actualized democracies. For example, the United States is far from an actualized democracy, a place where the potential for democracy is realized. I've taught in Sweden, Norway, those places, and I think they have made some progress, but I wouldn't say they are actualized democracies. So what I want to start with is this idea of a continuum. The continuum involves some countries making some progress, but the other point about the continuum is that it's not inevitable that progress is in one direction. We can have movement backwards towards dictatorship again. And we've seen this historically. For example, Germany was, in the 19th century and much of the early 20th century, the most advanced country in terms of science, technology, much of culture, high culture. When Freud visited America in 1910, he visited and gave lectures at Clark University. They didn't need a translator when he spoke German, because the professors spoke German. German was the advanced language of the time. Germany went backwards. And there are other examples of countries going backwards. For example, it seems to me Venezuela has gone backwards. And there's signs recently that Turkey is in trouble. So we mustn't assume that progress is going to be unidirectional and we're go, going to always move towards democracy. So that's my first point. The second point is that psychologists have contributed to our understanding of dictatorships, but typically what they have done is studied personality. So there are literally hundreds of studies of Stalin, Hitler, now Gaddafi, Assad, all these people, particularly from a psychodynamic perspective. And the focus has been on the individual dictator. I would argue that that approach is wrong. Of course, that approach emerges because of the individualism of modern psychology. Uh, modern psychology is dominated by the United States, and American psychology is all about individual behavior. 
I'm going to argue that to understand dictatorship, we can't focus on the individual dictator. That's only part of the puzzle. I'm going to focus on what I call the springboard to dictatorship. How does the springboard come into effect? Now, it's not the case that all the research done from a psychological perspective is irrelevant. No. The personality of the dictator does matter. But that's only part of the picture. It's only part of the picture because in any human group, you know this from work, you know this from family, in any human group, there are potential dictators. We have them at work. Why is it that they don't become dictators? Because they do not have the opportunity to become dictators. I'm always amused that in science, there's so many examples of people who have been so brilliant, like Newton, Isaac Newton, who was so brilliant. But when you read his private life, you realize, oh my god, this would have been a terrible dictator. He destroyed the lives of a number of scientists around him when he had the power. So individually, if we focus on personalities, we can find people who are as narcissistic as Hitler was. The difference is they did not have the opportunity. So I'm going to focus on what I call the springboard to dictatorship. What are the conditions that give rise to the springboard? Now, uh, one of the issues we have to deal with is definition, because we might have these debates about, well, one person's dictator is another one person's you know, democratically elected leader. What, what is a dictator? Um, under two here, I give a definition. Dictatorship is ruled by a single person or a clique for example, I regard China as a dictatorship, and there it's not a single person, it's a clique who rules, that is not elected through free and fair elections and not removable through popular election. So you can't get rid of the dictator or the clique who are dictators. With direct control of the security apparatus that represses political opposition, without any independent legislative and judicial checks, with policies that reflect the wishes and whims of the dictator individual or clique, so the whims of that clique or the individual determine things, rather than popular will, and with a high degree of control over education, mass media, and communications and information systems, as well as the movements of citizens, towards the goal of continuing regime rule. So the, the, the goal of dictatorship is regime rule. So if we ask, well, why is it that these regimes put up with low standard of living or terrible conditions for their people? Well, the, the whole purpose of the dictatorship is to continue ruling. That's the secondary part is, well, are, are people having a good standard of living? That's the secondary part. What distinguishes between that and a democracy, there are a few criteria that I bring in for a democracy. For example, 
later on when I discuss the springboard to dictatorship, you might ask, well, doesn't that mean that the United States is a dictatorship? But I'm going to introduce these criteria. One is the town square test. The town square test is a very simple test. Can you go to a particular country and stand in the town square and say what you want? In an organization, I guess it would be the water cooler test. You know, can you go to the water cooler and start complaining about the organization and not be killed, not be arrested, not be put away? That's rule number one. I would say, according to that rule, places like the United States pass the test because you know, we can whatever the faults of the United States, we can at least say what we want here. So I think I can. <laughs> but I know I couldn't in Iraq. And I couldn't in Russia. And I couldn't in China. So that's a very simple test. The other test I would put forward is the vote them out test. It's very easy to vote people in or to have a referendum and get a power put into place, but can you get them out? That's a very important criteria. Now, there are some other criteria for a democracy, but I'm going to stop there. Those are the simplest. Now, let me talk a little bit about the springboard to dictatorship and the conditions that enable the springboard to come into place. I've mentioned that in any human group there will be potential dictators in terms of personality characteristics. The springboard is the key, but it doesn't mean that the potential dictator is without power. What we often find is that the potential dictator is able to influence the situation so that he can, or it's usually a he, we've got very few female dictators, he can influence the situation to bring into effect the springboard. And I'm going to give examples of that later. So it's not that the potential dictator is helpless. The potential dictator uses opportunities to bring into effect the springboard. What are the characteristics of the springboard? How does the springboard come into effect? Number one, threat. Perceived threat, external and internal. <coughs> If you want to highlight one of the few really strong psychological relationships in social behavior, it's between external threat and internal cohesion. When the group is threatened, the group becomes cohesive and supportive of the leadership. Look at the polls before 9-11 and after 9-11. <coughs> uh, immediately after 9-11, support for Bush jumps up. There are so many historical examples of this, in addition to experimental evidence. Margaret Thatcher was going to probably lose the elections 
along came the Falklands War, and she won. Uh, interestingly, <coughs> in her um, autobiography, The Downing Street Day, she discusses the Falklands effect, and she says, you know, the media made too much of that. I would have won anyway. <laughs> but the fact is, the Falklands War helped her a lot. So one of the key things about dictatorship is that the dictator will focus on threat. For example, if you look at the leadership of North Korea, the North leadership of Iran, whenever they are in trouble, sensing problems, they will exaggerate the threat from the outside, particularly the great Satan, and they will focus on the threat inside. Now, unfortunately, this involves repression of minorities and often repression of women as well. That's often the case. In the classic instances such as Hitler, of course, he had his focus on the Jewish threat and then he used that kind of thing as an excuse to uh, uh, crack down on internal dissent. So there are lots of historical examples of this. Uh, this psychological relationship between threat and this natural tendency for human groups to gather around, support the leader in times of conflict, aggressive leadership rises. This is even the case in democracies. For example, Churchill was exactly the kind of leader who rises to the top during war. He's not a great peacetime leader. So that's number one. A second factor in the creation of this springboard is insecurity. Insecurity that is created in large part by the regime. A feeling of political and economic insecurity where you're not sure what's going to happen, you're not sure what the economy is going to do, if your life is going to collapse, and that large-scale insecurity that is created by the regime translates into personal ins insecurity. So that you feel insecure and related to that is a lack of trust. A lack of trust, not just in the regime, not just in institutions, but in your neighbors, in your family. If you look at the extremes of this, for example, Stalin's Russia, where family members would not trust one another. There's a wonderful book called The Whisperers, about people who disappeared during Stalin's time and family members who could not trust each other, the wife who couldn't trust her husband. In Iran after the revolution, I found several families who had been turned in for various things by their own children. The children having been duped at school. A lack of trust where your neighbor might be informing on you. And of course, this is exaggerated by the rumors spread by the agents of the regime. 
the whole idea is that you can't trust anybody, so don't get together. You can't have more than five people getting together, otherwise that, that is the problem. The lack of trust in dictatorships prevents mobilization and prevents people reacting against the regime. This links up to a sense of collective helplessness. Psychologically, this is very important. Feeling helpless, you can't do anything against the regime, even collectively. There's a large psychological literature on learned helplessness. It, it started with um, Seligman's work with dogs, where in different conditions, you would give electric shocks to dogs. Imagine a simplified experiment where you have two conditions. In condition one, you shock the dog, and the dog can get out of the enclosure. In condition two, you shock the dog, the dog cannot get out. After a while, the dog just lies down and takes the shocks. When you present that second dog, the opportunity to leave, it has now learned to be helpless. It won't leave. It will just lie there and take the shock. That kind of learned helplessness translates into a collective learned helplessness in dictatorships where there is extreme repression and people just will not react to extreme conditions where they're deprived, their standard of living has gone down, very difficult, repressive conditions, but they don't react collectively particularly. In these conditions, there's often a message from the dictators, or would-be dictators, that they are the ones that can revive, that they are the ones involved in a revival, and it's often a moral revival. We often forget that part of Hitler's message was about a moral revival in Germany. It wasn't just economic. It's exactly that message that comes along with dictatorships that are, for example, in Iran right now the notion of a moral revival happening over the last 30, 40 years. Uh, unfortunately, you get the same kind of message right now in places like Turkey, where I see dangers. And we can debate this if, if, uh, I, I, if there is any disagreement. Uh, I, I got into trouble about six months ago because uh, Mrs. Erdogan, the Prime Minister's wife, was in Washington, and there was a ceremony, and I had the opportunity to present her with a package as a gift. And my book had just come out, and I, so I put it in the package, thinking, well, I'll get it as part of the package. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we're there, and I'm giving her the package, and I'm walking off, and she said, oh, what's this? She pulls her hand in the package, gets my book out. And she says, oh, she stands with me and takes a picture. Oh. <laughs> By the time I got home, I was getting so many emails from Turkey 
people say, yes, you told her. <laughs> and the people who had organized that event were pressuring me to apologize. And I didn't. I said, well, I didn't do it. I, mean, I didn't pull the thing out. And by the way, look what's happened. <laughs> but th this moral revival is always, for me, a bad signal. A bad signal when you've got this message coming out from a regime saying, you know, we're going to be better people, cleaner people. We're not just going to be economically better off, we're going to be morally better off. And that scares me. Another factor in this process is the support of elites. You often find when there is a surge towards dictatorship or a continuation of dictatorship, particular elites and institutions play a very important role. Unfortunately, the military and the church, they play a very important role. Now, it's not surprising because they are hierarchical. They are the kinds of institutions where you have to carry out orders. And you must not question. If the leader of the military says, do this, you, your job is not to say, well, let's debate that for a while. <laughs> you know, if, if the Pope makes a declaration, or Ayatollah makes a de declaration, we have to follow. <coughs> so it's not surprising that historically, the church and the military have been at the forefront of bringing about and sustaining dictatorships. Look back to South America since the Second World War. Between 1945 and 1980s, the dictatorships that survived were, you know, I'm at Georgetown, a Catholic place, Catholic institution, Catholic Church supported dictatorships all the way through. I even given the book examples of where priests would give comfort to torturers and killers. They would give them comfort by praying with them, telling them they were doing the right thing. So key institutions, key elites, and this is something we often forget. Uh, if we go back to Hitler, there were very important elites supporting Hitler, not just in Germany. Ford and a number of very prominent industrialists in America supported Hitler. In England, most of the aristocracy, including the king who abdicated, supported Hitler. In the 1930s, there was a character called Sir Oswald Mosley. Oswald Mosley was married to one of the Mitford sisters. The Mitford sisters were the equivalent of Princess Diana of their day. They were true blue aristocrats. Oswald Mosley used to march through London with hundreds of thousands of black shirts. The black shirts were the equivalent of Hitler's brown shirts. They were pro-Nazi. Most of the aristocrats were. 
That's why they had to ship off that uh, kid who abdicated and send him away, because he was such an embarrassment. He'd gone off to meet with Hitler. So the shift to dictatorship doesn't happen without the support of these key institutions and key elites. And often it happens because they think the dictatorship is good for business. And this is one of the myths, actually, about Hitler, that he was good for business. Uh, in the book, I cite a wonderful new book that's reanalyzed the economic performance of Nazi Germany and actually concluded that it wasn't good for business. But the myth persists that, that dictatorships are good for business. Of course, they are good for a very small elite who siphon off all the money. You know, that's good for business for them. Now, another point I want to raise here is about crisis incidents. I mentioned that the potential dictator can play a role in activating the springboard to dictatorship. And this often happens through crisis incidents. For example, Hitler used a particular incident where a left-wing radical had set fire to a government building, and Hitler said, the communists are coming, clamped down on civil liberties, and the Nazis were in. In Iran, after revolution, that crisis incident that was used was the hostage-taking. You know, from the outside, it may seem idiotic. Why would they invade an embassy and, and stay there for so long? It served the purpose of Khomeini and his followers. Through that period, one by one, they knocked out all their opposition. By the end of the hostage-taking, they were in absolute control. And, and very importantly, women had been excluded from the public sphere. That was one of their initial aims. And the crisis incident allowed them to do that. Certain cultural traditions also help. Cultural traditions particularly in the narratives used in society. Now, I'm coming back to the issue of psychology. From my perspective, the psychology that's most important in these situations where you're trying to get a transition from dictatorship to democracy, we had that opportunity in Iran, they had that opportunity in Egypt, the most important psychology is not what is in the individual head. It is the psychology that is out there. It's much more powerful than what is in here. Let me give you a few examples. There's a wonderful study by uh, Claude Steele who I think is retired now, but uh, is an African-American psychologist and is on stereotype threat. 
wonderful series of studies where he looked at the performance, he started with the performance of males and females in maths. And he got men and women who were very good in math, and he tested them under different conditions. In condition one, just give a math test. In condition two, you very subtly, very subtly introduce the concept of gender. Very subtly. The result is that when you introduce the concept of gender, the scores for women drop. Now that study has been replicated many times. It's been replicated with African Americans, different variations. Uh, the one I love, which was a bit of a joke, was uh, white men can't jump. They were measuring how high white men jump, and in one condition they remind them, oh, by the way, you know, what's the stereotype? <laughs> now, why is that powerful? Because the stereotype is, n is not just in here. It's no use me saying, oh, I'm going to fight that stereotype. I will not conform to that stereotype. It's useless because the stereotype is not just in my head. It is out there in society. It's in the narratives we use. It's in our social relationships. So it takes longer to change. When you think back to the Arab Spring, or the revolution in Iran. The question is, there was a burst of freedom. Initially, everybody could do more or less what they wanted. When I went back to Iran, the army, the military was non-existent, the police was hiding, women were free. How is it that a year later, everything was repressed again? How did that transition happen? It happened because of the wider narratives. It wasn't just because of individual psychology. It was because of collective processes. Now, unfortunately, Western psychology is just catching up with some developments in Russia. For example, Vygotsky. Vygotsky, the great Russian psychologist, he focused on cognition, not just in here. He said cognition takes place in two stages. First, outside, and then it's assimilated within the person. So he's starting from the big world. The group, the collective, is always going to be first, then the individual. Before you and I arrived in this world, there was already a culture, there was already a set of norms, there was already a way of life that we assimilated into. And our cognitive processes took up that larger process that's cultural. So in, in thinking about the transition from dictatorship to democracy, we have to think of the larger picture, not just individual psychology. But of course, the other part of this is that it's a rule that I, I, I call the macro-micro rule. Macro processes 
the maximum speed of change is always going to be faster than microprocessors. You can have a revolution overnight. You can change laws overnight. You can write a democratic constitution overnight. But now I have to abide by that constitution. I have to learn the skills necessary. I have to learn the social relationships necessary. I have to learn how to be democratic in relation to others. And that takes a much longer time. So we have this very slow, painful process where you have Mubarak collapsing, Morsi taking over, but then suddenly Morsi seems to be becoming Mubarak. And then the whole thing collapses. Let me come back to the individual dictator. Because I began by saying that most psychological studies have been on the personalities of dictators. And I said that I'm not going to focus on that because for me the most important factor is the springboard to dictatorship. However, the personality is important. It does play some role. So what are the characteristics of the typical dictator? What kinds of individuals are more likely to become dictators? Well, here are some of the characteristics, but they don't actually apply to all dictators. For example, charisma is the first one. Charisma is well known in leadership research. It's discussed in relation to dictators, but actually, a few of the most important dictators in history have had no charisma. For example, Stalin. Stalin was not charismatic. He couldn't appeal to crowds. He couldn't make wonderful speeches the way Hitler did. Now, Machiavellianism is something that I think is more common to all dictators. Um, the measure, the psychological measure of Machiavellianism was developed by uh, Dick Christie uh, from Nicola Machiavelli's The Prince. And it's a measure that gets at this tendency for people to see the world as threatening. Now, the world is a threatening place, so I'm going to get you before you get me, because I know you're after me. And nice people finish last, so I'm going to cut corners and lie and cheat. So the Machiavellian is always out to get you because he knows you're after him. And that's often a very important trait of dictators. They're ruthless in that they see the world as threatening and they act on it. Narcissism is also very important, the, the, the tendency to see the world through your own wishes and desires and only that. And linked to that is a craving for centralized power. You can see this so clearly when you listen. For example, I don't, I don't know if you remember Gaddafi's last days when he was still giving these speeches and he was still 
fantasizing about the power and everything was him. You know, his family was all over the place. His country was being destroyed and everything was about him. Same with Hitler. Of course, he was willing to uh, get old men and young boys to die for him, even in the last days. Another psychological factor here is low tolerance for differences. Now, this has been studied extensively in psychology. Dictators typically have very low tolerance for ambiguity, for anything that is in the middle, gray, uncertain. They want certainty. And in their world, it's black and white. They have ideologies that make the world black and white. And they are very quick at pointing out who is with them, who is against them. Tolerance for ambiguity is something that was studied in the original Adorno studies in the 1950s, the authoritarian personality. It's being studied now under different labels in psychology. It's a very important uh, characteristic. Uh, if we do our jobs well in education, we should be raising more and more people who have high tolerance for ambiguity, who don't see the world as black and white, who do see the complexities of the world. But of course, uh, we don't always get it right in education. And self-glorification is another of the characteristics of the potential dictator. Let me talk a little bit now about ideology. Here, I differ a lot from some of the things I've read about the role of ideology in dictatorships. I think a lot of the writing that's come out about dictatorships has been inspired by the Marxist theme of false consciousness. And the idea has been that uh, I don't know if you've come across that book, um, uh, What's the Matter with, um, which book am I thinking? What's the Matter with? Kansas. Kansas. Is that right? Yes. yes. Uh, where it's a sort of journalistic book that looks at people in Kansas and says, look, these people should be voting Democrat. Why are they voting Republican? You know, they are, they're misperceiving. They don't understand their own interests. And of course, this is classic Marx. False consciousness, uh, the proletariat do not understand their own position as a separate class with distinct interests. Now, this has come down to us. And if you look at discussions about why did dictatorships survive, it's often coming down to, well, dictatorships survive because the masses are fooled by ideology. The masses are brainwashed. I find this very hard to believe. The reason is, 
If you go to a place like Tehran right now, what you find is the masses, as Finn seems to me, they know exactly what's going on. They know they live in a corrupt state that if they speak up, they're going to kill, get killed. If you go to Russia, are, are Russians walking around spouting Putin's ideology? I don't think so. The Russians I met, even, even the lower educated ones, they, they were pretty clear. It's a mafia system. What is keeping these dictatorships in place? It seems to me it's clear. It's the gun. It's the gun pointing at your head. When I was in Iran, I didn't dare speak out. If I go to China, I won't stand there and start shouting about how corrupt the Chinese system is. Why? Because I'm going arrested. The masses are held down in dictatorships by pure force, not ideology. I don't think the regimes bother to check ideology at that level. Ideology does play a very important role, though, in dictatorships. It plays the role of keeping the power elite cohesive. If you're one of the power elite, you must conform to the ideology. If you're one of the regime in Iran or Russia, North Korea, China, you have to toe the party line. It's there that they don't tolerate any dissent in ideology. That's why if you are the dictator's uncle in North Korea and you step out of line, you get killed. If you are uh, the ex-president or ex-prime minister in Iran and you step out of line, you get put out. So the role of ideology in dictatorships I would argue, is really there to keep the elite cohesive and to allow them to pummel the masses if they need to. Ideology allows the dictatorship to use brute force to maintain their power. But they don't have to expend their energy trying to convince everybody in the country of their ideology. Of course, if you go to schools, the kids are going to have to pass their exams in the ideology. You know, they're going to have to get all the answers right in, in the usual ways, but they don't have to believe it. Everybody knows it's a facade. So that's a twist to the traditional way of looking at ideology in dictatorships. Finally, I'm going to come to an issue that I started with, that is a continuum, the dictatorship democracy continuum. I started by saying that in everyday life, we categorize the world into dictatorships and democracies, and that, it seems to me, is wrong. What we should think about is a continuum where all the nations start as dictatorships. Some have made some progress towards democracy. One of the characteristics of capitalist democracies in the last 30 years 
has been increasing inequality, increasing group-based inequalities, and another characteristic of the last half century, actually, has been lower social mobility. Uh, President Obama uh, made a speech recently in which he said, you know, in the last 10, 15 years or so, he, he insinuated that it's fairly recent that, that social mobility has gone down. Actually, I don't think that's true. If you look at the data, social mobility has been fairly low for the last 40, 50 years. Uh, there's actually a new book using new methodology. It's called The Suns Also Rise. And the methodology they use is following family names. And they've done a cross-cultural study suggesting that actually social mobility is fairly low across cultures. So one of the questions I want to leave you with is this. Given increased inequalities, in resources, and given low social mobility, do these trends have any implications for democracy? Now, you could say, no, they don't, because democracy is about voting and political things, and you know, resources have got nothing to do with that. Uh, but I would say that there is a link and that the quality of democracy is going to decline if we have a situation, as we do in America right now, where resource inequalities are increasing, participation in political events is declining, and social mobility is low. I'll stop there. Thank you. If there are any questions, I'd be happy to. Thank you so much. Uh, I was hoping that you would spend a little bit of time on uh, external factors as part of your uh, uh, springboard. Yes. I'm specifically thinking of, uh, you were talking about Latin America, I was thinking of our friends in Guatemala are almost at there in Iran, yes. and how the external factors cause the emergence of uh, dictatorship. Extremely uh, good question. Um, there's no doubt that, at least with respect to third world dictatorships, external factors have played a very important role, uh, particularly during the Cold War era, where uh, the Soviets and the United States uh, were basically backing any power uh, they could in order to try to uh, defeat the, the opposition. So I would say you're absolutely right. External factors are important, and they continue to be. Um, I've just been writing under a title, uh, I call it The New American Global Dilemma. Uh, some of you will know the original American Global Di American Dilemma. This was Gunnar Myrdal's work, The American Dilemma. 
where he did a study of the United States and he said, look, there's a dilemma here. The United States is all about freedom, but you've got segregation. You can't have this together. Right now we have a new global American dilemma because the United States continues to talk about freedom and democracy and backs the Saudis and backs all kinds of regimes that we know are dictatorships. So external factors are very important and uh, they continue to be particularly in the third world I would say another factor that is very important in all of the world is globalization. Globalization is in some ways reinforcing tendencies toward dictatorship in the West as well. And this is something that is uh, a danger in the long run. You mentioned early on that there are few, if any, women dictators. I'm wondering why you think that's the case, and which part of your model do women not fulfill? Excellent question. Well, I, I think historically, if we look at leadership historically, you know, human settlements from about 12,000 years ago, we had the development of chiefs and kings and all kinds of titles. It was physical strength. Physical strength was the key. And even now, actually, if you look at the uh, political psychology evidence, there's a lot of interesting data coming out showing that voters are influenced by even split-second images of faces. And they usually prefer to vote for faces that reflect strength. So, that part of it is important, the history of the role of physical strength and our stereotype of leadership. Now, it's beginning to change. Uh, we have, you know, we've had Margaret Thatcher, Gandhi, all kinds of uh, people coming in in Merkel. Um, uh, so you can see a transition, but, but hopefully women will not become dictators the way, the way men have been dictators. And hopefully they will stick with the democratic side. But why? Well, in large part, I think because the processes that bring them to power are democratic. So if you look at the process of dictatorship bringing somebody to power, the relationship between the followership and the leadership, that becomes important. There's a, a literature right now on followership. Followers shaping leaders. And the followership for women tends to be more democratic. It's not to the right, it's to the left. So uh, the, the, the answer I would give is that the processes that bring women to power tend to be democratic processes. Now, we might find some exceptions. I think Margaret Thatcher could have become an exception if, if we had a bigger war than the Falklands War. Yes. Uh, Professor Mohamed, uh, very interesting. Uh, I just want to, I want to go back to the beginning of your talk. And, uh, it's interesting because I think you draw from theory, but you're also relying on experimental psychology. Yeah. Very rightfully, I think you were critical of experimental psychology. 
experience in psychology and uh, I think uh, that a lot of people forget that a lot of that is done in Western uh, societies that are in you know, a historical sense very unique, yeah. Yeah. maybe not yeah. uh, extendable as easily. Uh, that criticism uh, aside, there seems to be a push toward uh, evolutionary psychology, yes. combined with anthropology and biology that's not trying to make up for that lack by looking at our biggest collective, which is our species. Yes. Um, do you draw on your on those insights in your work or not as uh, much? Yes, actually, the, the, there's a biologist here at Stanford, uh, Paul Erling, whose work I admire a lot, and I borrowed some ideas from him in what I discuss as catastrophic evolution. Uh, the idea is that some of what we are seeing in terms of radicalization in the Islamic world, that can be interpreted as a kind of reaction to uh, what I call catastrophic evolution. Uh, Ehrlich talks about um, pre-adaptation and what happens when uh, life forms come together suddenly without pre-adaptation, without preparation. Well, of often it's extinction. So you get the decline of one kind of life form. Now, do we have that in the human world? Yes, we do. Uh, North America. You know, there were probably about 100 million people living in North and South America when Columbus arrived. How many of them survived the next few centuries? Um, when Columbus arrived here, there were 15,000 languages in the world. 15,000. There are now 6,000 left. By the end of this century, most of the languages that are alive today will be dead. So what's happening is that we have declined in diversity in human life forms. And one evolutionary interpretation of what's going on in Islam right now, the traditionalists and fundamentalists have reacted to what they see to be a danger for them. That's their decline. I mean, imagine if the Shah had been in power for another 30 years. Uh, would, would there have been a decline in traditionalism? I don't know. I mean, Dr. Milani is much better equipped to answer that. But that, they saw that danger. Yes? How much of uh, this psychology of dictatorship and democratic behavior coming from the leaders, how much of that rests upon the, the audience. And let me just throw in the word um, crowdsourcing and quorum sensing, and the way fish, a school of fish moves in one direction or the yes. other. And then if you've got a dictator, uh, the, uh, the school of fish would be moving in the direction of, of the dictatorship. Yes. And um, when you touched on the uh, insecurities of, of individuals, if we touch on this crowd, this school of fish, and there are insecurities, mm -hmm. and insecurities are, let's say, brown eyes uh, versus uh, green-eyed uh, groups of people that there was a study back in the 70s, yes. I'm sure you know what. Yeah. So what I'm getting at is there are complexities, and um, the crowd by itself, the audience, has a lot to do with who will 
get on the top of the mantle? Yes, um, I, I think if we look at the new research coming out about followership, you know, what are the characteristics of the followers that impact on the type of leadership you get? That comes back to something like what you're saying. Um, I would put it slightly differently, though. I would say, let's look at the culture, the larger culture, and particularly the collective narratives that persist in society. Those collective narratives are in not just the written book, but they are in our social relationships. And they persist and they carry through, and they can influence the type of leadership that comes into place. So let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Something very interesting happened after the revolution in Iran. Uh, I went to some people's houses where they had become uh, very religious suddenly. And they put away furniture. They said, we're going to sit on the floor. And these were people who obviously were going with the tide. So you don't have furniture, and you're going to sit on the floor. But what persisted? What persisted was certain traditions in where you sit. The most important people still sat at the top of the room. The least important sat by the door. <laughs> and when an important person came in, everybody still stood up. So I noticed that, OK, the furniture's not here, but the behavior's the same. <laughs> so that kind of persistence is what leads to continuity. And you can magnify that and think about how people are working cognitively and relating. So that continuation is very difficult to break. Uh, you can see this in revolutions. Look, at, look back at the French Revolution, how hard they tried. They changed the names of the days of the week. They changed the way you address one another, just as they did in, in, in Iran. They changed things like uh, the side of the road you, you move on. They try to change everything, the names of the roads. But there is persistence in patterns of behavior, just as right now in Iran, when you go back, you find certain patterns of behavior exactly the same as they were before the revolution. The inequalities and group-based inequalities particularly persisting. If I may, I have a question for hopefully your future uh, lecture here on springboarding to democracy. Which I love. Uh, in this context, you talked about dictatorship. In particular, you talked about uh, collective uh, narrative and consciousness uh, being out there as a major function. Uh, so, especially for uh, Iranians and being such a twilight of their helplessness. Yeah. There's a quintessential example is uh, our generation, our father's generation, is still waiting for things to change right away. So how do you foresee in that context, uh, that adaptation you talked about, that generally is needed, in screenboarding to democracy, 
what are the elements that essentially allows for this transition to happen by way of changing the narrative? Are we talking case of Iran centuries? Are we talking a age of enlightenment? Are we talking Renaissance? And if so, how? In the context of today's uh, yeah. That's a very simple question. <laughs> um, I think that's an excellent question. I want to start not by talking about Iran, but thinking back to the continuum and talking about the United States. Uh, and it's challenging because I've just, just, just in preparation to write a new chapter for this book, I've been reviewing evidence about voters in the United States and other democracies. First of all, even in the most important elections here, barely 50% vote. People who go to jail in places like Virginia lose their voting rights, not just while they're in jail, afterwards as well. There are all kinds of things that prevent people from voting. <coughs> then when we look at who votes and how do they vote, well, let me give you some of the evidence I'm, I'm looking through. There's a recent research in the um, proceedings of the National Academy where they showed that if in the last 10 days the local football team won, that adds something like 1.6 percentage points to the incumbent senator, governor, or president. <laughs> they showed the same pattern for basketball. They showed that when you flash images, the, the, the title of this paper that I just read was um, voting in, no, selecting in 100 milliseconds. They flashed images of Canadian politicians, 100 milliseconds, and Americans said, oh, that one, or oh, that one. And those images were enough to predict the winners of Canadian elections. Now, I could go on. There's research using neuroscience showing that uh, when CEO images were flashed up and the amygdala was checked, what they could track was the success of the CEO was actually predicted by activity in the amygdala. Now what all this suggests is that a lot of our selections <coughs> seem to be happening outside consciousness. And this is in the United States. So I would start by asking, okay, it, when people have elections, and they vote, what, what's happening? You know, how are they voting? What influences them? And once we start with a free country like the United States, we can then go and say, okay, now let's think about Iran. What are the challenges there? I think the challenges are much bigger there. But we know that even in places like the United States, we have challenges because we don't have true democracy yet. What we have are 
the procedures that take place for elections. The other interesting thing is that if you look at who votes, who votes in the United States, Poorer people, less educated people, are less inclined to vote. Uh, younger people are less inclined to vote. I mean, there's a real trend here. Fortunately, women are voting more now. They used to be less inclined to vote. So the, the, even the 50% who do vote in the most important elections, the, the, they're not a representative of the nation. They're representative of the most affluent groups. So, uh, you know, to come back to the Iran case, it's going to take time even to get to what we have here. But I'm always an optimist. Do you see a Chinese dictatorship as a, a class in itself? You know, uh, typically, historically, uh, a lot of dictators have been relatively uh, uneducated people, ruthless, uh, not very smart. Gaddafi uh, you know, could be an example. Yes. And the Chinese are the other extreme. You know, uh, they are extremely smart, they are engineers. Uh, they seem to at least do the right thing in some areas for yes. the Chinese population in terms of uh, uh, economic growth and uh, more opportunities. So uh, is that a situation where you know, uh, they are very different in your mind from other uh, dictators and maybe even much more difficult to dislodge because of that. Uh -huh. Well, they are and they aren't. They aren't because they have the hallmark of all dictatorships. They are a closed system that has become corrupt. I mean, the real reason I'm against dictatorship is because it's a corrupt system. When you have a system that you cannot question, then corruption seeps in. So the Chinese, for me, are still, they have the hallmarks of the classic dictatorship that is corruption and closeness. Now, they have managed to open up uh, their economic activities in relation to Taiwan, the West, etc. And I think they've been very clever in doing this. However, the challenge is how long can they keep this up? Their middle class is growing fast. The middle class wants more say. They might be bought up for a while, but I think in the long run, uh, it's going to be interesting to watch. Um, I don't like the Chinese system. I know a lot of people admire it. I don't like it because of the corruption and the closeness. Uh, I, I think it's very dangerous when you have a closed, corrupt system doing well economically, it was dangerous with Germany and it's dangerous with the Chinese. Well, just for, to clarify, I was not saying it's a good system. It's not no, a good no, system. no, no, no. It's just I, I different in the experience. Yes, it's definitely different. They're working more as a clique than, than you know, have one leader. But, but I worry about the long term, especially with the Chinese investments in Africa and their influence in in much of the East now. Yes. Yes, you mentioned the idea of continuum, which I think is a valid one. Um, that you can't just say, you know, there's black and white, there is just pure democracy and then there's pure dictatorship. There is a whole continuum. 
So that, I think, is a valid idea, which I don't think everyone is considering. You know, there, there a lot of people see black and white. So within that context, I think it would be helpful if you give us some examples of your own. I can think of uh, myself you know, yeah. some examples. Yeah, I guess everybody could. But I'd like to know your examples of the extremes of the extreme dictatorship. Let's say today or in the last few decades, yes. extreme dictatorship and extreme or best democracy, if you don't want to call it extreme. Right. Let's say, for example, you know, one that would be maybe somewhere in the middle or you know, not, not exactly at the extreme would be Singapore, right. which in some ways has some freedoms, yes. but it's not true democratic. So where would you put Singapore and then where would you put some other examples right. of good and bad? Right. That's great. Uh, you know, if we had time, I've done this exercise in other meetings where we give everybody a list and each country can be placed on a continuum. And interestingly enough, we find this high agreement. You know, I, I've done this with a room of 100 people and you find a lot of agreement. Now, with places like Singapore, uh, it becomes tricky because some people say, okay, there are dictatorships that are good for you. <laughs> and they often cite, oh yes, Singapore, you know, uh, or they go back to Ataturk, or play, you know, they say, oh, that was a good dictator. Uh, again, you know, it, it, it's, it's a matter of whether you see this as a historic transition or uh, you come back and say, well, Ataturk was good, why don't we have another one? <laughs> So with respect to the extremes, I would say, you know, North Korea, we would probably all agree is an extreme, you know, slightly less extreme than that would probably be Iran and, and Saudi Arabia and, you know, so I would certainly see Russia as a dictatorship and China as a dictatorship, but, uh, you know, it's not Stalin and it's not Mao, so there's slight differences. Um, but I think if we did this as a group, we would find quite a lot of agreement. Now, it could be that we're all wrong, I don't know. <laughs> how do you see, uh, on your analysis, how do you see Israel fitting into this? Well, uh, I mean, th th this is tricky. In, in one of my books, I've written that if Israel didn't exist, they would have to invent one for the Middle East. <laughs> uh, because wherever you go in that part of the world, Whatever discussion you have, people will say, oh, well, you know, yes, the sewer system is not working out, but that damn Israeli thing, you know, they say, well, wait a minute, what's the sewer system? They pull it out of the hat. So, if we look at it objectively, I mean, here we are in, in an academic setting uh, where we can say, what we want and publish what we want. Where else in that part of the world could we do that? Israel. It would have to be Israel, right? So from that perspective, as, a, as an academic, I'm always saying, well, you know, I'd probably end up there if I could go and live over there. Because in my own country of birth, I could not do it. Now, are there other problems? Of course there are because you've got the right wing in Israel that will not sue for peace. So you've got all those problems. But there's no doubt that they have a lively democracy. You know, that we can't deny. For themselves, right? For themselves. Yeah, not for, for themselves. Palestinians. Not for Palestinians. 
uh, it's, it's unfortunate that, you know, we, we, we started by talking about external threat, internal cohesion. The classic case is Israel. You know, if, if you talk to left-wing Israelis, they will do all kinds of things criticizing the government, but when it comes to survival, you know, the external threat gets them to be cohesive. Yes. Uh, hi, I think Christine Dave. Um, my question is, how do you think um, economic globalization will negatively impact the legitimacy of democracy in the nation state? Um, you know, as the uh, rise of like, supranational organizations, uh, et cetera, international countries? Right. Well, I think that's, that's a very important question in relation to globalization. Um, you know, globalization today, for me at least, is very different from anything that's come before. It has integrated security issues, and that has trumped everything else, it seems to me. Now what's driving the political concerns are these uh, discussions about terrorism and all kinds of things. I mean, we could talk about the psychology of heuristics. Thousands of people die every day from car crashes. Uh, how many from terrorists, and yet we're constantly talking about terrorism. Uh, so it's, it's not just the economic globalization, I think. It is this globalization of security so that we become focused on issues such as terrorism, and they capture the imagination uh, of so many people. So that you can't talk about other things. Um, you come to Washington right now, uh, any meeting I go to, uh, you know, I, I sometimes supervise government projects, and so many of them are just about terrorism. And I'm saying, well, well, you know, don't we have anything else? Can we talk about something else for a while? <laughs> I don't know if I answered your question, but my my concern is that it's not just the economic aspect, it's these other aspects that are flooding us. Going back to that issue of threat, it seems to me that, I, I, I want to know your opinion about this idea that um, this threat of globalization and, and cultural hegemony, not just economic, but cultural hegemony, and the and it is a fact that, I think, that these traditional cultures are going to be destroyed if there is no reaction. Yes. And of course, these forces that become dictators, they are reactionary. But it seems to me that in, in a country like Iran, all the forces that do talk about democracy or advocate democracy, even during the Shah, um, they don't really have a solution for this cultural hegemony and how to preserve, how to conserve um, native cultures without becoming reactionary, how to remain flexible but not lose oneself. And I think until there is such a, a framework for thinking about culture, there's always going to be this tug of war and I don't think either side really has a solution because when you take, talk, talk about culture, in an Iranian context at least, 
you know, you have people who are westernized and democratic, and you have reactionaries. Yes. That's a, a great question again. Um, about three years ago, when Ahmadinejad was in town, there was a meeting on multiculturalism in Tehran, and they celebrated multiculturalism. Now, I think that says a lot. It says a lot to me because it comes back to this argument of relativism. That our way of doing things is as good as the West, and each culture is, should be free to go its own way. Now, I'm against relativism, both internationally and nationally. I'm against relativism nationally because I've argued that multiculturalism, for example, in schools, has actually diverted minority cultures into tracks that are not productive. I've put forward something as an alternative that I call omniculturalism, omni meaning all. That is, you start with human universals. You start with the acceptance that human beings have commonalities, and those commonalities can be scientifically established. So first of all, we are human beings. Second, yes, there is diversity. So I would replace multiculturalism, although I know it is the uh, politically correct way to go right now. You go to any school and you know, everybody's uh, discussing multiculturalism as the correct way. But I don't think it's done much of good for minorities. You look at the performance of Hispanics and African Americans, and it seems to me that it's hard to argue that multiculturalism has benefited them. And I would say relativism always always goes against minorities. Minorities need human rights. That's what protects them, and human universals. When they go into a relativistic path, they get the worst deal. You look at the aspirations of young minorities right now in the United States. Most of that, those aspirations are in areas like music and basketball. I've had black students come to me and say, look, um, my, my friends make fun of me. They say I'm doing a whitey thing when I study. Quite serious, yeah. So I would say, Multiculturalism and that path is not going to be good for minorities, and it's particularly not going to be good in the third world for women, because women in the third world need human rights. If they don't have universal human rights, then they're going to be dependent on local rules, and local rules typically are not good for them. Just as the local rules are not good for African Americans here. Yes. Are you, 
forgive me, but I see a bit of discrepancy here. Okay. You are suggesting that <coughs> Brown versus Board of Education was not a good idea? Ah, no, no, no. That's, that, that's different. Uh, I'm not advocating segregation. I'm not advocating segregation. What I am saying is exactly the opposite. All students should be judged exactly the same way. They should not be given different stereotypes to work on, which is what's happening with multiculturalism. And the problem is it's become politically correct. And this is, this is where you could talk about narratives that link up to dictatorship, you know, where people are afraid to speak out. I've been to schools in Washington, D.C., where a teacher will not be able to speak out because it's politically incorrect to do that. You know, so um, I'm, not, I'm not advocating we turn back the board decision. I'm advocating exactly the opposite that we do exactly the same with all students and uh, multiculturalism doesn't allow that right now. Um, I can send you a couple of papers I've done on this. I actually did a survey of uh, 4,000 Americans representative sample in the United States and we asked them, we gave them assimilation, multiculturalism, omniculturalism as the choice and if you describe it that way the preference was actually for omniculturalism. Yes. Um, what you just described, I think, goes for uh, an assumption that people do whatever benefits themselves and their self-interest in, in the culture, in segregation, or uh, creating like, equal opportunity for everyone. And uh, I think the institutionalized uh, uh, human right and equal right, that's important. That's what, at least in U.S., the Constitution, yes. the philosophy of how this country was founded, yes. that is the, uh, the imbalance. Actually, that's, there's a balance of power, but it's actually imbalance of power. Right. Everyone is keeping each other on you know, their toes. That, I think, is the most important thing, because if you leave it up to human nature, they will mess it up. They will vote for their own interests, whatever fits their benefits at that moment. And um, maybe I'm too simplistic, but uh, that blueprint, I think, is what probably has kept this country ahead of everyone else. And that it was an experiment which turned out to be great. <laughs> well, I agree that the balance of power is very important. Uh, you know, in, in Washington right now, there's a lot of complaints about gridlock. But I always say I, I'm quite happy to have, you know, uh, the President of Congress and the Supreme Court fighting it out. I just you moved know. from Virginia after 25 oh, years. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> yes. So I agree with you. The balance of power is very healthy over there. I, I don't want one of them to get to get the upper hand. Yes. Um, so the way you described democracy and the examples you gave uh, made me think that the ideal situation that you imagine is one where 100% of the people vote, 
and everybody votes um, in an informed manner. So they, they study the candidate and so on and so forth. Uh, but this is not the only ideal that one can imagine, right? So some people would say uh, what we should strive towards is a government that is small and um, people not voting because they've succeeded in making the government irrelevant, right? And, and the, the rights are expansive. Right. And the government has nothing to worry about, and, and we don't want to spend more than 500 milliseconds on, on, on those right. decisions. Right. So what, what is your response to that? Okay. Um, first of all, the first part of your question, uh, one of the debates that I think we need to have in the United States is the debate about whether voting should be a right or a duty. In some countries, such as Australia, voting is a duty. If you don't vote, you get fined. And there are a number of other democracies that have that. In the United States, voting is a right, and indeed it's a right that can be taken away from you and is taken away from you. So if you look at the history of voting in the United States, there's actually a very good book called The Disappearing American Voter. There's been a decline in participation. And some elites see that as good. Now, one solution could be to say, OK, uh, let's decrease the power of the government so that, as your second part of your question, so that it becomes irrelevant. So it doesn't matter if you vote or not. I don't see that as viable, given the nature of the modern economy and the uh, social system at the moment. Because uh, even though the United States is supposed to be a capitalistic country, the government <coughs> is in everything. I don't see it possible in the near future to draw back. Perhaps if uh, Paul Ryan becomes president, he might draw back. I don't know. And yet, if, if I may uh, follow up, and yet uh, there are huge disparities um, in size of government across nations. Yes. Right? yes. And yet, in every nation, you probably say the government can't possibly be smaller, and yet, in other nations, it is. Right. Well, it, it's possible, but uh, I'm not sure that. Um, in the United States, unless you give a lot more power to the states, unless you transfer federal power, a lot more of it to state power. That, that I see as possible, then you'd have a real federation system. I'm not sure if it's possible to keep the present system of government and decrease federal power without increasing local well, state. Well, no, but what I mean is um, certain things the government didn't used to do in, in, when the nation was founded, for example. Yes. The government wasn't in the business of income redistribution. The government wasn't in the business of you know, regulation of various things right. that it regulates now. So is it possible to go back to those? You know, well, to I, that? I think in theory, yes. In right. theory, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm wondering if you think the best way is for um, a democratic nation to negotiate with the dictator, and I'm thinking about this in the context of the sanctions currently placed on Iran and the Iran nuclear bombs. I'm sorry, I didn't hear the second. I'm wondering this in the context of the sanctions currently imposed on 
Iran and the Iran nuclear talks. Well, you know, I, 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 I think that's an excellent question that Dr. Milani is much better prepared to answer than I am. I will ask him to answer. <laughs> no, I think we should let uh, you uh, get some rest. Okay, so I He, he's going to answer your question. <laughs> 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 you a lot of background in your illustrations that very feature. Yes, there are, but, but you know, it comes back to the, the Myrtle's argument that you want to be consistent. Uh, yeah. uh, well, hopefully we can. Hopefully we will. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, on, your, on the question that was raised about why you don't see women dictators. Yes. I think that's. I think that. In fact, that there are not women dictators. There haven't been women dictators. It's a function of a small data set rather than anything else. Because if you take, for instance, Catherine yes. or Queen Elizabeth I, yes. in some older times, right. you have examples of women who, by chance of some sort, came out and they were perfectly adapted to being dictators. Yes, absolutely. And I would yeah. argue that Christina Kirshner yeah. and perhaps Eva Peron, yeah. and maybe it would have been, had she survived, Benazir Bhutto, right, right. would have been good examples of women who came to power by yeah. accidents of birth and politics yeah. and death yeah. and so on and so forth, and would, as I say, have been perfectly capable as dictators. Well, what kept, yes, what, yes. The, the example that you used of Margaret Thatcher, I think, yes. is a good example of a woman not able to become a dictator right. because of the institutions yes. within yes. which she ruled. And That's she would true. not have been, any more than Winston Churchill might have been in right. World War II, right. capable of becoming a dictator. Right. So I, 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 mean, I, I think you're absolutely I think there's right. more, to be, be the, more to be chewed on there. Yeah, it could be the small data set. Um, but I'm also saying that that women tend to come to power uh, more through democratic processes than the non-democratic. That was my, my initial argument. Um, and you're saying that's not necessarily the case. I'll have to think about this because I could only find two or three examples of women who were briefly dictators and they came in through relatives. But I give the, the examples in the book. Uh, but I think you've got an excellent case. Yes, yes, that makes sense. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was very interesting.
effective ways in which an average Jew and the society can actually change the collective cognition of the society, other than controlling the mass media or like you know being a person like Gandhi or something like that? But well, the average Joe, somebody like me, I can't. No. Unless you get to the leave of the power, I thought I asked you that question. Yes. 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 Yes.